Stepan Van Meegeren is a name that probably doesn't spring to mind straight away. Uh, But he was a famous and talented painter in the first half of the 20th century. The problem was he was a forger. Uh, His original works were criticised as being tired and showing too much reliance on other famous painters. And so to prove his skill, he set about replicating the exact same style and the exact same colours as those other artists. And he did it so well that people thought his paintings were newly found originals from these other artists. And so he began to sell them off as such. Uh, By the time that he was found out, he had managed to rake in uh, what would be the equivalent today of around $400 million. Who was that name? Han Van Meegeren. Now, while his paintings were admired in many places and by many people, Problem was, the people were admiring fakes. It's the problem of humanity. We admire fakes. From the Garden of Eden, we have done the same. Trying to assume control over God, uh, rather than submitting to Him. Instead of worshipping the one true God, and giving Him all glory and honour that He deserves, we create idols and serve those Instead, Pelagius uh, was a heretic in the 4th century and he suggested that we humans are not actually all that bad. Uh, We're not as sinful to the core as some propose. But he was matched by the great theologian Augustine who countered that by appealing to the scriptures and declaring, yes, indeed we are. We need more than just a leg up to help us to God. See, after Adam, we humans do not become sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. And we must understand that because God is sovereign and just and holy, then he must and he does meet our punishment against sin. He would not be holy if he did not. But his wrath is not like the capricious or fickle nature of uh, the gods that you might read about in Greek mythology or legend. The sovereign creator of the universe always acts justly and in holiness. As we conclude our series today, looking at the character and the work of God, And as we've been doing that through the passages in the scriptures which talk specifically about homosexuality, we will learn about God's wrath. And it's a very sobering lesson for us all, but a very important one, because it sets us back in our place as sinful creatures before the Holy Creator. But we'll also learn about God's righteousness Not only that God is righteous and perfect in his actions, but that he bestows that righteousness on sinful creatures to restore them back to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the gospel that God has provided a way himself to deal with the problem of sin. But this morning we're going to take our time to get to that good news because Until we recognise the utter despair that we face without Christ, 
We will never accept the wonder of his gracious and merciful work to save us. Jesus declared to the self-righteous Pharisees in Luke chapter 5 from verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, only those who acknowledge their sinfulness can receive the Saviour. Therefore, a better understanding of the bad news gives a greater appreciation and the ability to accept the good news through the power of the Spirit. And that is exactly what Paul does uh, in his letter to the Romans. So please turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 18 to 32. So Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. From Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul begins by telling us that God's wrath is being revealed. And the question is, why is it being revealed? The answer is, because the truth of God is being suppressed. 
God's wrath is revealed because the truth of God is suppressed. Now, God's wrath is his righteous anger against the unholiness of sin. It's not irrational, as human anger can tend to be, but it is a just reaction to anything that opposes his holy nature and his perfect will. Hence, it comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In John chapter 3, verse 36 Uh, We're told that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We see that faith in Christ is the way to experience forgiveness and to know life. But if we do not receive Christ through faith, then we remain with God's wrath upon us. And we know that God's wrath will ultimately be displayed at the final judgment. But his wrath is currently upon unrepentant sinners and at certain times is dispersed within history. This exhibition of God's wrath within history rather than at the climax of history is exactly what Paul was speaking about here in Romans chapter 1. And the reason for God's wrath being revealed is that people try and suppress the truth, the truth that people must submit to God as their creator. But ironically, while people try and suppress God's truth, God is actually suppressing them with his wrath from above, from heaven. Uh, You may have seen the TV show Mystery Diners. Uh, It documents restaurant staff who who try and get away with deceiving their boss, uh, running scams, stealing food, stealing money, all sorts of stuff. But the organisers have actually set up cameras and microphones all around the restaurant and all the time the boss is watching them from a control booth just outside the room. Of course the boss has the power to fire them. In a similar way we somehow think we can hide or ignore God's truth and get away with it. That somehow we can conceal what we're doing. But God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator. And you cannot overpower his truth. It's a word for every single person in the entire world. In Paul's writing here, he is particularly speaking about the Gentiles. The the church in Rome mainly consisted of Gentiles and they needed to be aware of what their position was without Christ. And that's the exact position of the whole world without Christ. Then in chapter 2, Paul specifically addresses the Jews and he tells them that they're also accountable uh, because they've been given the written law of Moses and yet they still rebel. The Gentiles had it through creation and had it through their consciences The Jews had that as well as the written law. And so in chapters 1 to 3, Paul's really highlighting the universal nature of sin. And he summarises in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. All have fallen short of God's glory. And that is a very sobering lesson for us to understand. We're not merely in need of a a leg up 
uh, or a little bit of help to get us back to God. None of us do any good that makes us right before God. Isaiah reminds us that all sinners' righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's important for us to sit with that, to meditate upon that thought. But this is who we are in our nature and our choices. Because as we do so, we come to see the incredible nature of God's grace, that he would save us, save his enemies, rebels. So God's wrath is revealed because people suppress the truth of God. And as Paul explains, they do this in three specific ways. First, in verse 19, is people suppress the reality of God. They suppress the reality of God. Richard Dawkins, uh, the famous evolutionary biologist, made this comment in one of his books, and I quote, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. End quote. Gets better. In an interview, he was asked what he would do if he met God after he died. And Dawkins replied, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Now, you'll notice the incredible contradiction between those two statements People can see the reality of God everywhere in this world because he has made it plain. But there is a flat-out refusal and inability to acknowledge that God is the one who has made all things. But secondly, people also suppress the qualities of God. We see that in verse 20. God has made himself known through his creation since creation. All parts of creation, and get this, especially humanity, because you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. But all creation testifies to the presence of God and his power and nature. Yet despite God's natural revelation, uh, or might be termed his general revelation, we turn away from the truth. And as such, we are all without excuse. Common objection raised... Uh, is how can people be judged guilty of sin if they've never heard they're sinners? Or phrased slightly differently, how can people be judged guilty of sin if they've not had a chance to respond to God? You know, if they haven't heard the name Jesus before. But do not miss the language here in Romans and think that people are somehow innocent and that they didn't get a choice to hear or to respond to God. God, as Paul has said, has made it plain. Clearly seen, known, and yet they chose, we choose to go against him. Of course, natural revelation, that is seeing God in creation, cannot lead a person to salvation. People are sinful by nature and choice. And so we are unable and unwilling to accept the evidence for God unless the Holy Spirit brings regeneration into our hearts first. But natural revelation does do something. It does make each person culpable for their sin. It's not an error on God's behalf that he hasn't made himself clear. 
No, it is an error on our behalf that we've chosen to ignore it. And thirdly, in verses 21 to 23, we see that people suppress the glory of God. People in their sinful state do not give God the glory that he deserves, nor thank him for all that he is and all that he does. Which shows how far gone we are in our sin, because Paul says that people knew God and chose to ignore him. But instead of leading to wisdom, going at it without God only leads to ignorance and foolishness. Now there are several exchanges that take place throughout this chapter. The first we see here, verse 23, really sets up the major problem. That is idolatry. Seeking to remove God from his place of authority and glory, placing something else, anything else, in his rightful place. Swapping worship of the creator for worship of created things. And so the wrath of God is being revealed because all people have suppressed the clear truth of God and they are without excuse. But then we see in verse 24 to the end of the chapter that God's wrath is also realised. How is it realised? How does it play out? Through God giving people up to the consequences of their sin. There are three times in this section in which the phrase, God gave them up, occurs. And it tells us that God doesn't just impassively let people experience the consequences of sin. As if uh, one writer gives this explanation or illustration, he says, as if God is, is holding a boat and merely just lets go and allows the current to take it downstream. No, to use that imagery again, as writer says, uh, God doesn't simply let go of the boat, but he gives it a push downstream. God is active in punishing sin. But moreover, the recurring phrase of God gave them up, it serves to highlight this downward spiral into the consequences and the punishment of sin. A renowned pastor and theologian, John MacArthur, he brings this point out in his notes on Romans when he shows that the consequences of sin lead to three distinct revolutions. And the first revolution that we see in verses 24 to 25 is a sexual revolution. God gives people up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. And Paul is describing a general state of sexual immorality, which if you read through scripture includes aspects of fornication, that is sex before marriage, adultery, sex outside of marriage, pornography, and any other variant that we might not like to think of. All this comes about because people exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's caused by idolatry. Prophet Isaiah writes about the futility of worshipping idols. And he, in speaking of someone who cuts down a tree, he writes this in chapter 44. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. 
his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Utter foolishness. Now, the idols worshipped in modern Western culture might not be so obvious as a carved tree, but they're still here, and they're still just as useless. And furthermore, we have to understand that the worship of idols, it leads to sexual misconduct. We might not like to think that that includes us, but because we haven't acted in these uh, in these ways, but what about our thoughts? What about our attitudes and our minds? Paul says people were already in the sinful desires of their hearts when God gave them over to it, that they might continue to degrade their bodies. Well, think about what Jesus declared in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus reminds us very clearly that it's not only our behavior, but our very thoughts that are sinful if they are desiring something that is not of God. In that respect, we're all guilty. As people continue to ignore God, uh, they continue to be given over to the consequences of their sin going down and down and down until hopefully they repent. We can certainly see the effect today of the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s. Uh, No one bats an eyelid uh, as to what is displayed on our billboards or shown on TV or talked about in our kids' classrooms. When we remove God from the equation, however, we shouldn't be expected to see anything different. Now, our culture is rampant with this. But the sad reality is that it's infiltrated the church as well. Many Christian marriages have broken down through unfaithfulness. Many potential Christian marriages uh, have been damaged before they've even begun because the couple has been deceived by worldly thinking that sexual intimacy is not the explicit domain of a marriage covenant. Now Jesus himself is clear on both of these issues. We've just read his comments about adultery in Matthew 5, but think also of his his conversation with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Verse 16, he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. One commentator explains that she was living conjugally with a man who Jesus said was not her husband. And by such an explicit statement, our Lord rejected the notion that when two people live together, it constitutes marriage. Biblically, marriage is always restricted to a public, formal, official and recognised covenant. So brothers and sisters, do not be deceived into thinking that marriage can exist if it does not meet these biblical requirements. The sexual revolution has also infiltrated the church in other ways. Now, television screens are a prime conduit for that. How many people convince themselves that it's okay to watch shows that have good storylines, even though they contain gratuitous 
graphic and grossly depicted scenes of sex and nudity. But the plot was good. So what we see is the beginning of a sexual revolution, but it moves down then into a homosexual revolution. That's what we see in verses 26 to 27. Paul writes, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. There is not only an abandoning of sexual restraint reserved solely for the covenant of marriage, but there is an abandoning of God's creational design for sexual relations between men and women. And we are in the midst of this right now. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s has spiralled down into a homosexual revolution, such that everywhere we look in society nowadays, the gay agenda is being pushed into the spotlight. But we have to understand this. This agenda could not have reached such prominence if the sexual revolution had not paved the way. Uh, Albert Moeller, in his book, We Cannot Be Silent, writes, and I quote, Any consideration of the eclipse of marriage in the last century must take into account four massive developments. Birth control and conception, divorce, advanced reproductive technologies and cohabitation. End quote. In essence, the sexual revolution was sparked by people being enabled to have sex without babies and have babies without sex. Once those Restrictions have been removed through technological progress. The snowball started down the hill and it's been gathering speed ever since. But let's remember again that the root cause of all sin is an abandoning of God, turning to idols and away from the Creator. However, it's not merely the natural consequences of sin that we're witnessing but indeed the realisation, the enacting of God's wrath. Now this all seems pretty clear from the scriptures, but there are three main areas that revisionists try and make the claim that Paul is saying absolutely nothing against what we would understand as modern, loving and caring homosexual relationships. Now it's important that we look quickly but carefully through these now so that we can respond adequately if we're presented with these claims. And make no doubt, we see these in the newspapers all the time, do we not? So the first area concerns the meaning of the word natural. What does the word natural mean here? Well, it is proposed that it refers to people's natural sexual disposition. That is, Paul is speaking against people who are naturally heterosexual, yet participating in homosexual activity. In this respect, Paul is not saying anything against people who would uh, naturally refer to themselves, sorry, whose natural sexual disposition is homosexual. But that doesn't hold up because firstly, the whole context of the Bible affirms sexual relations between male and female, and specifically only husband and wife. And remember, you cannot read any text about sexuality without reference to Genesis 1 and 2. And secondly, the context of the passage itself shows us that natural or nature does not refer to an individual's orientation, but to the way God has designed things. That is, 
what is natural according to God's creational design. Decreation is mentioned several times in the passage. And thus, if anything is to be considered unnatural, it must be done so in the light of Genesis 1 and 2. The second area concerns the phrase, men committing shameless acts with men. It's proposed that is, it's really unclear as to what Paul is referring to. Is it men with men? Or perhaps prostitution? Or is it men with boys? All of those things were happening in the Roman Empire at that time. But the purpose of making this proposition here is to try and make the text seem ambiguous so that we can't affirm clearly either way. It's it's really just a muddying of the waters. But it doesn't hold up either because the words translated men literally mean males. And thus the phrase literally says males committing shameless acts with males. And so Paul doesn't place any distinction on the age between the two participants, for he condemns any male having sex with another male. Nor does he place any condition on the circumstances for whether it is prostitution, men with boys, or two men in a loving relationship, it is all considered sinful and shameful before God. And the third area concerns the concept of sexual orientation. It is proposed that the Bible doesn't really have any understanding of the modern concept of sexual orientation. So that whatever else may be said about the text, we know that Paul was not covering all the aspects because he just wasn't aware of this reality. But this is just plain ludicrous. The Apostle Paul had travelled far and wide throughout the Roman Empire and so he, of all people, would have seen the many and varied ways that people sinned in their relationships with each other. And he made no concession that certain types of homosexual actions were any less sinful than others. On top of this, Jesus, as we might remember, is a member of the Trinity. He shows his affirmation of Paul's words because they are sovereignly guided and inspired by the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. For all scripture is God-breathed. And Jesus also shows his affirmation of God's wrath being revealed because he is unified in being and in purpose with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so you cannot separate these words from Jesus. The notion of sexual orientation is a big discussion and far more time would be needed to talk through it than we have this morning. But let me just say that even here, the argument does not stand up on biblical grounds. One book that I'd recommend to you on this topic is a book called Transforming Homosexuality with the subtitle, What the Bible Says About Sexual Orientation and Change. And it's two writers. Uh, uh, Denny Burke is a professor of biblical studies. Heath Lambert is a trained biblical counsellor. And they make the following comment, and I quote, Same-sex orientation as an identity category is problematic. From a Christian perspective, it invites us to embrace fictional identities that go directly against God's revealed purposes for creation. 
It invites us to define ourselves and the meaning of our lives according to the sum total of our fallen sexual attractions. And they further state, to embrace an identity that goes against God's revealed purpose is by definition sinful. In other words, God has revealed his design for creation. And whenever and however we seek to deviate from that design, it is considered sin. And furthermore, Paul explains in verse 24 that the desires of people's hearts, if they are fixed on something that is against God's good design, are in fact sinful. Jesus spoke of the same thing concerning desires in Matthew 5. This means that it's not merely homosexual behaviour that is sinful, but the desires as well. Once again, it shows that Jesus was not silent on this subject either. Well, we can see that idolatry leads to sexual revolution and then to homosexual revolution. But if we continue now in the final few verses of Romans 1, we'll see that it leads finally down to an intellectual revolution. Paul writes, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The final step of ignoring and rebelling against God is that he gives people over to the foolishness of their own minds. We think that we have wisdom greater than God in and of ourselves, but the reality is that without God there is just foolishness and the incapacity to do what is right. The list of vices in verses 29 to 31 are by no means exhaustive, but they show up the extensive nature of our rebellion against God. And Paul shows that no one is left standing in good stead with God. All people, as we've said, are born into sin through their connection to Adam. And all people choose to sin. And as such, we are all accountable to God for not having followed him completely, for not having loved God with all our hearts and minds and strength, and for not having loved our neighbours as ourselves. Paul makes sure that no one can walk away from reading this chapter without recognising that the wrath of God is being revealed against them, and that without any assistance from God, they are in desperate trouble. And yet, the spiralling down continues even further. For as we see in verse 32, what's worse than carrying out sin is celebrating and encouraging others to sin. It shows without a doubt that God is right to bring about his wrath because he's made himself known not only in creation but also in people's consciences. We know God's righteous decree and yet we ignore it. But to approve of sinful practices... This is the lowest of the low. In, in the prophetic words of Malachi, we read this in chapter 2, verse 17. The prophet says, You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Make no mistake, this is where our society is headed at the moment. It is not enough Uh, that people wish to live against God's good purposes. No, there's this rallying cry to make sure that sinful practices, whatever they might be, are normalised and celebrated 
while at the same time seeking to ensure that anyone who stands up for biblical truth is painted as some crazy bigot full of hate speech and intolerance. Rational discussion has gone out the window. One of the things that characterises being made in the image and likeness of God is rationality, which sets us apart from the animals. And yet when we turn our backs on God, we begin to lose those traits even more so. Again, this is the punishment of the Lord. This is the working out of his wrath. This is the bad news. I hope you're getting that. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God without exception. And until we recognise the utter despair that we face before God by ourselves, we will never accept the wonder of his gracious and merciful work to save us. Better understanding of the bad news, a clear understanding of the bad news, gives us greater appreciation for the good news and recognition of our need for it. And to this is where I'd like to bring things to a conclusion. While God has revealed his wrath against humanity's unrighteousness, he's also revealed his righteousness in order to save humanity from its unrighteousness. This is the why the gospel is such good news that the whole world needs to hear. That by responding to the gospel, we can be saved from our sins and reconciled to God, no longer enemies of God, but having become his children. Look at the words in Romans 1, verse 16 to 17, which immediately precede all that we've talked about. He declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is where we see God's righteousness revealed, a righteousness that saves sinful rebels from his holy and just wrath. What is the gospel? Well, if we look to the opening words of chapter 1, Paul makes that very clear. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the gospel is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his obedient life, his substitutionary death, and his physical bodily resurrection. And it is by faith alone in this Christ alone by the grace of God alone, that sinners have hope of redemption and reconciliation with holy God. We are all sinners, and we sin in a variety of ways, some more obvious than others. As uh, Burke and Lambert explain, all of us are born with an orientation towards sin. The ongoing experience of same-sex sexual attraction is but one manifestation of our common experience of indwelling sin. But the good news is that every sinner who turns to Christ in repentance and faith will be saved. In Romans 10, Paul declares, 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As Paul explained in Romans 1, the heart of our sin is idolatry and it stems all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve, our first parents, sought to remove God from his seat of authority, replace him with something else. But let us not worship a fake any longer. Let us humbly bow before the sovereign and holy creator of the universe Acknowledge that his wrath against our sins is just. And then through faith, receive and stand in the gracious righteousness brought about through the gospel. The redeeming work of his son, the Lord Jesus. Let us not worship a fake any longer. Let us worship the one true God. Amen. I just want to add a couple of footnotes to today's message because we've come to the last in our series looking at the nature and work of God uh, through the passages which speak about homosexuality. And I thought this series important, firstly, uh, to help us understand what the Bible actually teaches about homosexuality and to equip us with the knowledge of how people have tried to revise the plain meaning of those texts. But moreover, to equip us uh, in the knowledge that homosexuality isn't the unforgivable sin, but that all sinners can be saved through faith in Christ. Uh, as it happens in the last two months, a declaration was released, Christian declaration, uh, signed by leading evangelical pastors, theologians, teachers and counsellors, uh, which summarises the issues of marriage and sexuality and gender that we've covered over this past couple of weeks. And it's called the Nashville Statement. Uh, since its release, over 17,000 people have signed their names to it. And this week I added my own name to that list. Uh, there are details in this week's news sheet as well as a link to the webpage. Um, but for those who don't have access to a computer, uh, we have some copies uh, out in the foyer uh, printed off, which you can collect after the service if you would like. And I encourage you all to read it. As it, is, as it is an extremely helpful resource. There's also a clear line in the sand as it highlights that those who deny biblical marriage have denied the gospel. Uh, for as the Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians 5, the covenantal union between one man and one woman is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done to save sinners. It's an important thing for us to recognise. So that's the first thing. But secondly... Uh, in doing this series, I wanted to encourage us, moreover, to learn about who God is and what God has done. So I want us to be so focused on understanding the Bible's view of homosexuality that we miss the Bible's view on God, God's own revelation to us, and indeed uh, the other things within all these passages that we've covered that uh, might be more applicable uh, to our own fallenness. Um, and so over this series, we've recognised the sovereignty of God. The justice and the mercy of God, the holiness of God, the wrath and righteousness of God, and the kingdom of God. As has been made clear, we are all sinners 
But no matter what kind of sin that bent is towards, by the grace of God, sinners can be washed clean, forgiven, declared righteous, and enter into God's gracious kingdom. Kingdom in which his people live together under his gracious kingship. And all this through faith, the life, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Why don't we pray as the musos come up for our final song. Our Father, we thank you that you are a holy and righteous God. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are the creator, sustainer and redeemer. We thank you for everything we've learned over this past two months about who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would stir in us a deep desire to continue to understand more about yourself through your word by the Spirit. Help us to be faithful to Christ in all we do and help us to proclaim the gospel clearly, graciously, courageously to those around us that others may also come to know the grace and mercy and forgiveness and new life through Christ Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.